When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing for Monday, July 12th. I'm Samuel Burke, joined by my fellow host, Ash Bennington, and backed by very popular demand from the audience and from the host is Darius Dale, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Darius, we'll get to your questions and answers in just a second, but we just want to give you a little preview of what we're going to put to you today and really the stories percolating that fit into the bigger picture that we always look at on the daily briefing. So for me, Ash, it's definitely been the soaring expectations of inflation, not from the New York Fed, but from the New York Fed survey. Consumers are thinking about housing, prices, uh, wages. They see all of that going up as employment goes down. And of course, we can't talk inflation with Darius without talking deflation. What's on uh, your radar, Ash? Yeah, I'm looking at uh, US equity indices S&P 500 once again at all-time intraday highs. This is ahead of economic data, especially uh, the CPI and PPI data that's coming out tomorrow and Wednesday, and also Q2 earnings season, Samuel. Yeah, and uh, over here, the European Central Bank and Madame Lagarde signaling that they will extend measures, a policy shift coming in the next 10 days, extending that lifeline, it looks like, into 2000. 22. Those are some of the stories we're going to be looking at with you, Darius, and viewer questions. But I was actually pretty surprised to find out, since I'm the new guy around here, that, Ash, it's your first time on camera with Darius. I know. I'm surprised to find that out, too. And it's just, you know, I've been watching Darius on Real Vision. He's such a good friend to Real Vision uh, for such a long time. It's really a pleasure to be here with you today, Darius. Ash, it is a pleasure, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So listen, uh, because it's really our first time together, why don't you give us the big picture framework for how you look at markets, how you look at macro. Let's talk grid regimes. Yes, let's do that. So uh, I'll be quick. Uh, we look at 42 macro. We look at the world through a regime segmentation process. Um, and that process allows us to quickly speed up um, the latency associated with responding to changing market conditions. Um, historically speaking, asset markets have uh, the most dispersion amongst asset markets, both within asset classes and across asset classes, tends to occur around what we call grid regime cycles, um, with it, which are themselves based on the rates of change of growth and inflation in the economy. Therefore, regimes, G stands for Goldilocks, that's for growth accelerating and inflation is decelerating. R stands for reflation, that's where both growth and inflation are accelerating simultaneously. I stands for inflation, that's growth down, inflation up. And then D stands for deflation, that's where both growth and inflation are decelerating simultaneously. Each of those regimes has its own asset allocation uh, sort of, uh, characteristics that we're trying to constantly front run and help investors uh, proactively position for as it relates to the changes in the economy and in the markets. So it's a very simple way of breaking down a great deal of economic data, market data, inflation data, aggregating it in a very simple way uh, so that mm -hmm. you can see very clearly, very visually where you stand. And it also is very nice that it happens to work with the acronym too. 
Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I thought we were initially going to say uh, GRSD. Uh, that isn't. That sounds like a, a disease or something. Stagflation. <laughs> so yeah, I think grid is a little bit uh, much better. And we actually have a chart. Uh, if you can um, show your yeah, uh, show your viewers uh, looking at the, the four different uh, grid regimes. So again, asset markets they primarily functioned, from my perspective, primarily function on the rate of change of economies and of and of policy. Um, and that that rate of change has historically really been uh, instructive in terms of perpetuating, you know. Sector style factor dispersion. We talked about that last week. Uh, fixed income sector dispersion. So ultimately, where we are now is Goldilocks. The market is pricing in Goldilocks, and the sustainability of Goldilocks, in my opinion, is the only question investors should be asking themselves right now. Yeah. So tell us, how do you know that we're in the Goldilocks portion? What are the indicators that you're looking at? How do you aggregate them together, and what makes you convinced that this is where we are today? Yeah, so I uh, actually have a second chart, uh, our market regime probability. So at 42 Macro, we run what we call our global macro risk matrix. It's looking at 42 different core uh, asset market indicators and scoring them based on their historical relationships to those grid regimes. Um, and ultimately, the, the modal outcome, i.e. the regime that has the highest score at any point in time, is said to be the dominant market regime. And currently, Goldilocks has been the dominant market regime for a little over a month now. And in fact, I would argue it's pretty clear at this point, when you look at the sector and style factor leadership within the equity market, it's clearly shifted towards uh, tech, uh, dis or, or, you know, disinflationary digital economy names have really outperformed. I think Apple and Amazon are contributing over a third of the overall index gain for the month of July alone. So it's, it's pretty clear that we've lost a lot of breath associated with the former regime, which was reflation, and all the commodity and, and real economy exposures that outperformed in that regime, and it's and now we're, we're we're obviously pricing in something a little different. Yeah. Go ahead, Simon. No, I'm just curious, Darius. I was thinking when we had Peter Bokvar on last week when he was making such a strong case for inflation, and so I obviously put some of what you've been talking about in terms of deflation to him, and he was just saying, look, a lot of people who are talking about deflation, they're looking at the copper and lumber that you and Jack and I were talking about last week and said, we're being very selective if we think that's deflation. I'm wondering what you would say in response to that. Yeah, no, no. Peter's a good investor. I, I, I don't, I don't disagree that uh, others are being selective. When I say deflation, our models have the U.S. CPI peaking or having peaked in the in the month of May. Obviously, that forecast error there tomorrow's report. But the reality is, as you project out a, a year forward in time, it's very likely that we see persistent disinflation from either May or June. And that's what I mean. I'm, I'm, we're talking about this from a forward-looking perspective, i.e., what grid regime is the economy heading into, not the one that's obviously being observed by the data or by the New York Fed survey that you highlighted earlier. Well, I actually want to jump into that because I'm curious to think, to curious to know how you factor that type of information in. Obviously, that's consumer information. There's a lot of talk in the media about inflation, a lot of talk in markets about inflation. So I'm wondering if you see that as kind of a circle where somebody says something and then somebody else repeats it, or if you really factor that in, in terms of consumers are on the ground, they're feeling that price crunch. My dad was just talking to me about getting chlorine for the pool, returning the chlorine because the price has come down so much. So what do you make of these numbers? I mean, if we just go over a few of them, we have uh, home price acceleration expected to continue at 6.2% annually. Again, this is what consumers are expecting. Workers mm -hmm. seeing earnings rise by 2.6% and expectations that unemployment uh, rate will be higher 
in uh, uh, expectations that unemployment rate will be higher in a year fell to 30.7%, the lowest in history. So consumers with their ear to the ground or their ear to the media? No, I think I think consumers have it right, right? We're in an extremely inflationary period of time that's obviously born out of uh, supply that supply chain bottlenecks and the reopening of the economy and, and the associated labor market uh, headwinds there on the wage side, or so not headwinds, tailwinds there on the wage side. However, when you look forward, we should be, this is the peak, the, the month of June, the month of May, the month of July, this was always going to be the peak month of inflation fears associated with the base effects of last year's inflation move. Now, if we're having this conversation two months from now, three months from now, and we're still talking about uh, accelerating inflation, that I only, well, my model have had forecast error, but I certainly think we would have a much a more precarious market regime dynamic to risk manage as a function of that, because it likely means the Fed's got to be a lot more tighter sooner rather than later. Yeah. And to add a little color for people who don't follow these data series as closely as you do, uh, Darius, this base effect comes from basically looking at year over year numbers. When you look at these dismal numbers that we had uh, in the spring, summer, late summer uh, of 2020, with obviously the COVID crisis, you start to see these massive uh, look jumps, basically a spread between uh, the low base where we were and where we are now with the reflation and acceleration of growth coming out of the reopening trade. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and so for our agent-based and outcast model for U.S. inflation, uh, there's 27 features and it's pretty mixed. It's not very clear yet that inflation is peaking and set to roll over. And I think part of the reason most investors have been shocked by this move in bond yields, they've obviously been shocked by the move higher in digital economy games, mega cap tech exposures as a function of that, because they're, no, you, it's hard to look around and see evidence yet of disinflation. This is why you need to have accurate models to understand where those rates of change might inflect and how long they could potentially trend in a different direction. Hey, Darius, that's such an important point. Uh, for people out there who may just be watching uh, financial news networks who are just looking at one or two different data points, you're looking at a whole series of them beneath the surface. Tell us, how do you think about that and how do you weigh them out? Because obviously, as anyone uh, who looks at economic data knows, all the data rarely go in the same direction. And even if they do, they're moving at different rates. So how do you balance that out? How do you get a sense of what the full picture is? Yeah, no, it's, it's so the, the models are, are, are formulating and producing a, a single output in terms of inflation estimates and, and or, and or growth estimates um, in terms of how to weight them. I think that's the, the that's what that's why we all do our, our secret sauce. Right. So our models are weighted based on they're dynamically retrained every month based on their first difference regressions with the dependent variable. Everyone's got their own secret sauce. You know, I'm not saying ours is the best in the world or the worst in the world, but I certainly do believe that in order to make money in asset markets on a consistent basis, you have to have a forward-looking view on the trending rates of change of growth and inflation. Whether or not you have great models to do that yourself or you pay for a service like mine to do that, either way, it, it, you know, there's a million ways to skin a cat, but you certainly have to have a view on where growth and inflation are headed if you want to do this well consistently across cycles. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. And when you saw the market today, I mean, we're hitting record highs uh, intraday at least. And when you know that there's this blockbuster earnings reports that are expected to start uh, tomorrow, actually, with the bank's 
But I think a lot of people are really looking more at what the forward guidance is. How do you factor that in? Yeah, no, I think the forward guidance is likely to be positive. I mean, you still have pretty robust growth projected for the back half of the year. We'll be decelerating. Um, obviously, the second quarter will likely be the peak year-over-year rate of change for pretty much every statistic in, in the economy. We're comping up against the shutdown economy, so that's pretty easy to figure that out. But on a forward-looking basis, I think investors are going to want uh, color on, on margins. I have the, the monopsonies that have really started to dominate uh, American economies and American society. Have they been able to continue that, that, that pricing power and really benefit from a bottom line perspective? I think the answer is yes. I think if you look at uh, the chart of Nike, for instance, uh, we have that for you guys as well. Um, you know, that chart is, if you look at it on a weekly candle basis, it's gapped higher four consecutive weeks after its earnings announcement a few weeks ago. I mean, or gapped higher into it and in three weeks afterwards. And so to me, it's telling you that even for a company as massive and widely followed as Nike, investors were dead wrong on not only the earnings growth rates, but also the likely sustainability of margins heading into the back half of the year and into next year. So I think we've always thought the earnings season would likely be a very positive catalyst for the stock market. And this is going back to the middle of last year. Nobody knows how to model down 9% GDP to up 12. Like it's never happened before. So how, how do you have any idea how to flow that through a PL statement? And the reality is it's most more likely that investors are a little too conservative, particularly after some of the volatility we've seen in the inflation names. Yeah. So I'm curious, you mentioned earlier, we were talking a little bit about, uh, we're talking about the tech sector. Uh, we were talking a little bit about some of the commodities. Uh, I'm curious when you think about this, obviously, if you look at a long-term chart uh, since the reopening began uh, for the S&P 500, for example, it's just up and to the right. Uh, but when you look at the market segmentation, uh, it's interesting. Obviously, there's been this sort of back and forth ping pong uh, between growth to value, value to growth, back and forth. I'm curious, uh, do the grids play a role in predicting sectors on the equity side as well? Yeah, no, se equity sector and more importantly, equity style factor dispersion is the primary, one of the, the biggest uh, sort of beneficiaries of, of our grid process, or at least investors uh, tend to benefit the most from that particular uh, you know segment of the process. The number one thing that's most consistent across grid regimes over the course of time is the sector and style factor dispersion. Well, what does that mean for people who may not know? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. So, so sectors, obviously, everyone knows what sectors are. Style factors are characteristics of the security of the company that have nothing to do with how the company makes money. Um, so we could be talking about growth or value, uh, large cap stocks, small cap stocks. It's, it's those sort of secondary characteristics that tend to um, you know, get, uh, force uh, different securities to be lumped in together and, and traded in certain baskets. And so um, when you think about dispersion, defensive sectors tend to be more defensive when you're in one of the negative grid regimes from a growth perspective, i.e. deflation or inflation. And then you typically have outperformance of cyclical sectors, higher beta sectors, smaller cap sectors uh, when you're one of the, the two positive regimes. But this transition from inflation to Goldilocks was especially important for investors to understand because the positioning associated with the mega cap thing type names and those types of exposures had come way down. And so this transition to Goldilocks catalyzed a short squeeze um, in a lot of these exposures that we're obviously seeing unwind uh, itself over the past you know, few weeks. So that's basically the move basically from a uh, high growth, high inflation environment to a moderating inflation, high growth environment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And again, the positioning certainly matters there as well. Um, and another thing on positioning, actually, um, so I, I tend to believe that Goldilocks has the ability 
to survive into you know the early to mid part of August at the at the later at the earliest um, as a function of obviously pet, Fed policy. It's unlikely we see enough data that really catalyzes um, you know that kind of risk off sentiment amongst investors from a growth perspective. Um, but you have something like positioning. Deutsche Bank put out a report this morning uh, saying that systematic equity strategies, i.e., rules based, quantitatively oriented, um, systematic you know investors, you know their 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 positioning is is markedly lagged discretionary managers, people who make decisions on a fundamental basis. They're in the 94th percentile discretionary, whereas systematic investors are really in the, only in the 78th percentile. It's very likely we have to catch these that that cohort of investors up before we see a real meaningful market event to the downside. I want to just switch gears for a little bit, Darius. I mean, we talked last week about the ECB suddenly saying inflation target doesn't have to be under 2%. We can overshoot it. Then we had interesting comments come out today from Christine Lagarde saying that in the next 10 days, we should expect a policy shift and somewhat signaling without many details that some of this life support, uh, these measures will be kept on board into 2022, the bond buying program. So I'm, I'm just curious, do you see that as divergent from what's happening in the United States? Yeah, I, it, yes, but increasingly less so. I, I've always thought that, you know, again, we could be proven very wrong in this tomorrow, but I, I've always thought that Jay Powell and his characterization of transitory price pressures is accurate. You know, we're not going back to the 1970s. It might feel like that in the moment, um, but, you know, there's a lot of transitory issues that are driving prices higher at the current juncture that are not fully offsetting or really addressing some of the more structural uh, dynamics in the economy, like the low labor force participation rate, like small uh, declining money velocity and things of that nature that have caused inflation to make a series of lower highs and lower lows over the past 30 years. So um, if that's the case, it may be the case that, you know, this expectation of spit tapering and, and the timing associated with that. It's just much too soon. I mean, as we've seen with the Delta variant, we've seen with you know some of the economic data like the ISM services. You know, it's not we're not we're not quite where we need to be yet. And I have to keep reminding people that we're still in recession. There's still an earnings recession. Well, it's about to end, obviously, in Q2. Um, but there's you know there's all these dynamics in the economy that would seem to support, with the exception of inflation, obviously, that would seem to support a Fed that is com- that should be comfortable maintaining its pace of asset purchase at least for another few months. Yeah. So, well, I, go, go ahead, Ash. Please. No, no, I was going to jump into a few questions, but I think you want to follow up with Darius and what he just said. So, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm just curious ab- about um, what some of those other indicators are that you're looking at from the Fed. Of what? I don't. I, to be clear, I don't think the Fed really understands what they're looking at. Either. Not to be disparaging, right. it's just that they have a new framework of of, of analyzing labor market dynamics that, quite frankly, has not been real well defined yet. And so I think we're all kind of, you know, with the bond photon, you know, trying to, you know, feel our way through the dark associated with, okay, what what the heck does substantial further progress even mean? Right. I, I pretty much know that when the employment survey uh, shows an increase in unemployment, um, or the way from 9.3 million to 9.4 million, that's clearly not substantial further progress. So I think we know what it doesn't, I think we know what it isn't, but what is it? And that, to me, is that that's why I think markets have been so on edge of late, particularly coming out of the uh, the June 15, 16 uh, FOMC, you know, dot plot revision, the hawkish dot plot revision, because I think investors got put on notice that, OK, maybe the punch bowl is clearly going to get taken away at some point. Maybe that 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 taking away of the punch bowl 
uh, is, a, is, a, is a Q3 catalyst. But again, I, I look around at our labor market statistics that are feeding into our, our, our agent-based now cast models for U.S. growth. And the reality is I just don't, I don't, I don't personally see it, so which means I don't personally believe the Fed is ready to make that pivot yet. Now, they might be there in September, um, you know, when, when, when kids go back to school and, and the, the female labor force participation rate can actually go higher. Uh, but until then, I, I really I, I kind of scratch my head at what people are looking at. Well, you said it so well before, Darius. We've never been here before. Yeah, it's, it's uncharted territory. And that's the beauty of markets, though. I mean, that's it, we're, it, they, they rhyme. These cycles rhyme. But, they, you know, there's there's always something different. And that's how you make money or, or lose money if you're not doing this well. <laughs> There's a question coming in from Lena. She says, if growth slows, Darius, do you see another QE coming from the Fed? If so, what is the indicator triggering such a move? Yeah, no, I think I think it's very unlikely. See, I think we're, we're too late in the process. The, 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 let me take a step back. It's extremely weird what's about to happen from a monetary policy perspective. Normally, the Fed is tightening in what we would consider to be a reflation regime. Growth and inflation are accelerating to, you know, their inevitable crescendos. This Fed has effectively told us that they will absolutely not tighten until we're well into uh, what is it likely to be a, a deflation regime. They're not, they don't know. They're not, they're not regime aware. Um, our customers are regime aware. You know, the viewers are regime aware watching us now, but the Fed isn't regime aware. And historically speaking, when you're talking about tightening monetary policy, into decelerating growth, into decelerating inflation, that tightens financial conditions considerably. And so they're, they're, they're risking a market event at some point whenever they finally do make that pivot. And I think everyone's on edge expecting that, okay, maybe that starts in July, maybe it starts in August, is it gonna start in September? And I think at the end of the day, you know, it's our job as investors to have a view on that. And as I mentioned, uh, right now, our, the, our, our models are telling me to have a view that says Goldilocks can extend itself at least for, at least for another month or so. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. Uh, here's a question that comes to us from Matt. Uh, that almost sounds like it's questioning the potential for a Goldilocks scenario. It's a pretty narrow question about one event, so please feel free to take this as broadly as you'd like, Darius. The question is, is Wells Fargo shuttering their credit lines a red flag? This, of course, is coming off the news uh, that Wells Fargo was going to effectively be pulling even existing credit lines uh, for consumer credit, revolving credit, uh, last week. I think and so. It's, and it's, it's, no, I just should know. It's, I found that story so fascinating, Ash and Darius, because, of course, Wells Fargo is the company that got in so much trouble for pushing so many personal banking accounts past <laughs> in the uh, ethical limit, for sure. And then all of a sudden they pull back in this way. Go ahead, Darius. No, you're absolutely right. I, I think it's definitely not a good sign, right? Like anytime you see a reduction in credit supply or availability, it's not good for the economy. And ultimately, it probably won't be good for asset markets. I don't know that this is a that Wells Fargo news in particular is something to be concerned about. I will say this, though, there, there, we've seen enough previews year to date for what this ultimate transition to a, what we call a deflation market regime might actually look like. And, you know, there's obviously some issues with the plumbing and the liquidity and the reverse repo uptake and things of that nature. And, you know, those things, those chickens come home to roost at some point. And it's unlikely that they come home to roost when you're talking about heading into a really positive earnings season where, 
companies are beating revenue estimates by four and a half percent or they're beating earnings estimates by you know 15 16 17 percent so but once you get beyond those positive catalysts then i think you really start to worry the markets will likely start to worry because then the one thing that markets have had um in terms of the win at the sales is growth and inflation are you know, when they accelerate together like that you know it's it's a panacea for a lot of things it covers up a lot of ills but when you start to decelerate and growth is more scarce um, there's less money to go around and less, you know, less less capital to, to service debt to go around in the economy. That's when things really start to uh, be, become an issue. In a similar vein, Frank asks you, Darius, do you see any signs of liquidity drying up in the markets? Also, considering how far and fast we've melted up in the current Goldilocks regime, do you foresee that pace strengthening to the downside if when the market shifts into a deflationary period? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to be careful when we say the market at this particular juncture because the the, the leadership has been incredibly thin. Uh, we spoke about this last week, but if you if you index the S and P to the May seventh high, you know the at the broad S and P five hundred is up three percent from there, but the average S and P five hundred stock is actually flat. Like so, it's been an incredibly narrow rally from the perspective of market breadth, and and so you know it's been too far too fast. But really, it's just a function of catalyzing that short curving activity associated with the mega cap digital economy names and now everyone has to own. Um, that's why we track dispersion on a month on month sharp ratio basis so religiously because it tells you where the flows are coming out of and where the flows are heading into at the margins. And and that's obviously been the, the trade over the past you know four to six weeks. Yeah. Uh, here's a question from you I have. Actually it's about three questions. So I'm going to simplify it here a little bit. Um, what are your thoughts? Obviously, this is something that you watch very closely uh, on the CPI report tomorrow. What are your expectations? Uh, Jay Powell speaking twice later in this week. UIM is also curious what you think we are going to hear. I mean, I mean, so I'll tell you what our modal outcome is. We have inflation taking down by uh, 10 basis points. So um, confirming our long held belief that inflation would start to decelerate in, in the month of June. If that's wrong, I think all bets are off in terms of what you were going to hear from Jay Powell, because if it looks like inflation is really starting to get out of hand, and I would argue it probably did last month with the five handle, if it really looks like, okay, we're just going to continue accelerating even as the base effects start to steepen, that's indicative of a lot more price pressure in the economy than we otherwise, you know, sort of, uh, than investors or even policymakers initially anticipated. And so his, his speech, I mean, this could be an extremely positive week for markets if inflation's fixed down. Powell just says, hey, I told you it's going to be transitory, and we're all high-fiving each other on Friday. Or inflation goes up a lot, and he's like, oh, I'm a little getting nervous, and, and maybe we have to do something differently at the end of the uh, July FOMC. Like I said, I have a view that it's more likely to be the former, not the latter. But again, we're always ready to pivot if we have to. Right. Uh I love the imagery of Jerome Powell high-fiving everybody. Uh, in, in similar, getting, getting back to the earnings reports that we were talking about that kick off in earnest tomorrow, Darius, is there uh, any information, Greg asked, that we should be keying in on from companies reporting earnings that would act as a canary in the coal mine? Uh, so canary in the coal mine is negative. I, I don't think the earnings picture. I mean, we're clearly going to peak in, in from a from an earnings revision cycle perspective at some point in the next you know few weeks, if not uh, by the end of August. You know that'll likely be it. But I don't know that we're looking for neg negativity in the economy to drive to be what drives asset markets. We don't. I mean, we're still going to be growing above trend, even though we're decelerating. Obviously, inflation will still be above trend, even though we'll be decelerating. So we're not talking about 
the historical sort of slowdowns into a deflation grid regime that have historically catalyzed like real negative market events. I think the big problem for asset markets is a lot more fun, a lot more sort of um, tethered to a change in monetary policy. Obviously, buying $120 billion a month is, is one, it's a ridiculous number, but two, it's obviously really had a massive impact on financial markets. And if we take away that liquidity at the inopportune time as it relates to the growth and inflation cycle, and oh, by the way, we might actually get some disappointment on fiscal policy, because again, you know, that's, that, that is, that's the, that's the, that's the, yeah, the crazy dance we all expected it to be, obviously, thus far. So, I mean, it could just be like a, a series of negative catalysts at the margin that really start to, 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 to weigh on investor sentiment and positioning from very elevated levels at that point. That, that's the real market risk. It's not really about the economy. Yeah. I think there's one more question coming in. I think you have that one, Ash. Um, so, Darius, is there any information we should be keeping uh, from on companies from earnings reports that would, oh, that's the one we just read. I'm sorry, I thought we were gonna be setting up a clip here. Um, no, I think there, I'll, I'll pull up this one more and then I wanna get to that NFT clip you have. Yeah. Uh, any, this one is from Ralph. Any thoughts on the cut in the Chinese reserve requirement ratio? and what it might mean for China and the 130 countries to which China is a top trading partner, Darius? It's quite weird, right? Like China spent most of the first half of the year trying to tighten monetary policy at the margins, and now they're starting to ease. And to me, I have to worry about, okay, well, our, 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 our grid regime model has China, the Chinese economy decelerating, and quite frankly, it's been decelerating for a while now. Are they worried about something that we're, we, we're not paying attention to? I mean, obviously, we run a ton of, of models and, and data for the Chinese economy. And, you know, I don't see anything that would have me be worried when I look at the numbers. But is there something going on from their perception of the global uh, financial system that they might feel the need to, to ease, ease credit and ease liquidity? I think, it's, I think it's too early to tell in terms of what's happening there. But I certainly think it's something to watch. Because, again, you got Europe, Europe saying, hey, no, we're not taking the punch bowl away. China's actually putting more uh, punch in the punch bowl. And I think increasingly you might have the Fed actually become more sanguine about uh, their, their policy uh, setting. So um, I don't agree. I mean, this could be a serious giddy up moment for markets uh, to the upside if that all comes to fruition over the next month or two. Um, but beyond that, I just I still just don't see how we get this. We sustain that all the way into the into the back end of the year. And just a little follow up to the conversation that you and I were having last week on the daily briefing, Darius, about China, Chinese tech and the canceling of those IPOs. Now TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, canceling their IPO, which is supposed to be in the United States. So some major wind shifting there. Uh, Ash, I know that you've done this interview with a really interesting figure who helped start Winamp, if folks remember that, Beats. Just set it up as we go into NFT week here at Real Vision. Yeah, let me just say that was a great question and a great answer, and I'm glad we got that in. Uh, so what you allude to, uh, Samuel, is this interview that I did with Ian Rogers, uh, who's just an incredibly interesting guy. He's someone who's a self-described uh, punk skateboarder. Uh, he's worked with uh, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine in the music business, as well as the Beastie Boys, uh, and he's a computer scientist. It's just a really interesting perspective that he brings to the table. Let's take a look at the clip. I love our Web2 devices, but I will not use them to protect Web3 value. That's, that is like simply what it, right. what it comes down to. Well, well, that phrase right there really represents the, the, the key sort of paradigm shift that we're making here from a world in which uh, if someone hanks into my Chase bank account, 
Uh, there's an 800 number that I can call and they can give me my money back. Uh, there's no 800 number in crypto. You can't call the blockchain. Uh, and so we're in this transition where the world that we live in is very much built for a web 2.0 world. And we're transitioning to a world where we are the own, we are our own custodians of value. And this is just a tremendous, tremendous big picture paradigm shift for people to get their heads around. And in any industrial transformation, you have unbundlings before you have rebundlings, right? We had compact discs, they got unbundled into MP3s. Ultimately, they got rebundled into music subscription services, but that took 15 years, right? Right now, we have Web 2 hardware. It's unbundled into Web 2 hardware plus Web 3 hardware. So you have your phone plus your Ledger Nano. That's the unbundling. That's what works, right? So there you have it, the transition between Web 2.0 and Web 3.0, the unbundling of services, really interesting stuff. This brings up, Samuel, as you just mentioned, uh, this NFT week that we've just kicked off today uh, here at Real Vision. Raul interviewing Kevin Kelly of Delphi Digital and Mason Nystrom of Masari. Uh, great content. If you're a subscriber to Real Vision, check it out. If you're not already a subscriber, uh, please Take a look at Real Vision Crypto so you can get this and other great content coming out of Real Vision Crypto. Samuel? We'll be watching that. A lot of people tuning in on realvision.com and the Real Vision app. Darius Dale, thank you for joining us again. We're going to be seeing a lot more of you here. So it was really great that Ash got you to lay out your philosophy and your format for looking at the market. So we'll see you again later in the week. And Ash, great to be back on camera with you this week. Great to be back with both of you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. And we'll see you tomorrow right here on The Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.